Professor Wolf, thanks so much for joining us today. The world has just marked 10 years since the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the event which sparked a crash on Wall Street, a gargantuan financial crisis, and the biggest recession the world has experienced since the Great Depression. One of the things that's striking in all the acreage of newsprint devoted to the anniversary is how little of it even attempts to discern the deeper causes of that recession. Was it merely a case of the subprime mortgage market in the United States going bust, or were the seeds of this crisis planted much earlier? Well, I think the the answer is that the seeds were planted much earlier, and the two parts of your question are connected because there's a good reason why those seeds have not been addressed in the 10 years since Lehman Brothers collapsed. And the simple explanation is that the situation has gotten worse, not better. Let me give the most important symbol uh, or single example of this. One of the central reasons why we collapsed capitalism globally in 2008 was the extreme inequality uh, in the distribution of wealth and income that had built up in the decades before 2008. Indeed, one of the reasons here in the United States that people borrowed so much money, for example, to, to afford a home, is because the wages had gone nowhere for 30 years, and the only way an American could buy a home which is part of the so-called American dream, was by borrowing. And uh, it's no great genius required to understand that if you keep borrowing more and more, and Americans have been on a borrowing binge at least for the last 40 years, for homes, for automobiles, for credit card use, and the most recent one uh, to send their kids to college, uh, it's not surprising that eventually a moment is reached when rising debt cannot be serviced by a stagnant wage income. And that's why we crashed in 2008. And here's the punchline. Inequality has gotten worse in the United States since 2008 compared to what it was even before that. So yes, you can't look at the seeds because if you did, you'd make people nearly hysterical with anxiety right now. There was much talk at the time of the recession of all kinds of exotic so-called financial instruments, essentially forms of speculative trading invented by Wall Street bankers as a way of making spectacular amounts of money, collateralised debt obligations, credit default swaps, derivatives trading and so on. These forms of making money fall under the rubric of financialization. Speak to the way the global economy, especially Western capitalism, has in the last few decades moved more and more away from investment in real productive activity, what's often called bricks and mortar, towards this purely financial kind of investment. Well, the central reason comes out of capitalism as a system itself. It is driven by profit. And the profit initially dictated concentrating production in those areas that turn to capitalism first, starting with Great Britain in the 17th century, moving to Western Europe in the centuries thereafter, and eventually becoming globalized. But in that process, the concentration of industries, factories, offices, stores, tended to be in the centers where capitalism originated, basically Western Europe, North America, and Japan. However, when that 
culminated in the 1970s with a situation where labor struggles had driven up wages in those places where capitalism was concentrated. Uh, the capitalists decided they could make more money uh, by going elsewhere. And modern technology, the Internet, jet travel, starting in the 1970s, made it possible to move production to a higher rate of profit by paying much lower wages in Asia, Africa, Latin America, uh, evading uh, ecological limits, all kinds of benefits. So basically, productive capital, the producing of goods and services, left its old centers, North America, Western Europe, and Japan, and moved to new centers, India, China, Brazil, and so on, leaving the wealthy to become even wealthier because the ownership remained in the old centers, or at least a lot of it did. Uh, and what they needed to do was to find new ways of tapping into a production system that had moved somewhere else. And financialization is a fancy word for making a market in instruments that represent wealth, even if that wealth is produced by other people in another part of the world. So literally, the financialization is the other side of this massive movement of capital to areas of low wages, and it was fed by and made possible by the incredible increase in profits that paying low wages to Chinese and Indian laborers uh, created for the same old people who had run capitalism all along, and so they transformed their stock markets into financial gambling houses, uh, playing games with the slips that represent the wealth even after the wealth has gone. By the way, this is a rerun in a different form of what happened to England a century earlier. As capitalism moved away from England in terms of producing goods and services, the city of London became the financial center that uh, arranged for the loans needed for capitalism to move to Europe, arranged for the, the shipping arrangements, the insurance arrangements, all the financing that goes on kept England rich through what London did financially, even though the factories had all left Manchester and Liverpool and gone to the continent. We're now seeing the same game played out on a global scale, only they're leaving the United States, Western Europe, and Japan, and moving uh, to China, India, Brazil, and so on. When the housing market collapsed in the United States 10 years ago, millions of American families lost their homes. Homeowners lost a staggering 3.3 trillion American dollars in home equity, sending millions into bankruptcy and in many cases outright destitution. Yet the banks were bailed out. The Wall Street firms responsible for the crash were rescued by colossal amounts of federal funding. Last year alone, the, the banks in the United States made a record $171.3 billion in profits. You've already touched on this, Professor Wolf, but explain to us in a little more detail how the recession not only didn't lead to a day of reckoning for finance capitalism, but in fact heralded an era of even greater profits of rapidly worsening social inequality. Well, basically, this is is a story of what happens to a society when you get the kind of polarization of wealth and poverty that I spoke about. 
what happens is that the highly concentrated wealth, uh, particularly in the financial and high-tech sectors of our economy, uh, is so out of touch with, so disproportionate to the difficulties of the mass of people economically, that those at the top feel threatened. Uh, their, their extraordinary wealth is occurring surrounded by a sea of people who stare at their wealth, utterly unable to keep up with it. And in a country that has universal suffrage, as we do, uh, it becomes a frightening thought to those at the top that the American people may use the vote, where the majority are middle and low income people, to undo in that manner the results of a capitalist economy that is making a few people very, very rich at everybody else's expense. And so what they did is understandable. The rich went in and they bought the political system to prevent it from serving that kind of function, a, a redistributive function or a social change function. So when the capitalism collapsed in 2008, the same bankers who had ridiculed government inefficiency all got on their personal jets, flew to Washington, and got the government that they lambasted and ridiculed to bail them out. And, and so they not only didn't have to pay for the crash their activities brought to the economy, they actually made money out of it as the government poured cash into them, which they used, among other things, and your listeners may enjoy the irony, the money that the government gave the banks was used in part by the banks to lobby the Congress not to regulate them in light of what had happened in 2008, and that largely succeeded that effort. Uh, the end result is a, uh, a situation where government is in the pockets of the rich. Everybody knows it. It is so gross, so glaring, so stark, that really there's very little effort left um, in, the, in the way of the of a expectation on the part of the mass of people that traditional government uh, can do anything for them. And one way you can see that here in the United States is that explains Donald Trump. He ran a campaign in 2016, literally first attacking the establishment of the Republican Party, and as soon as he had completed that, attacking the establishment of the Democratic Party, because those two parties had presided over the last 30 to 40 years of this great inequality. And he strongly suggested he would take all kinds of steps to undo that inequality, and it's not so much that the people believed him, it's that they were so disgusted with the Republican and Democratic Party establishments that anybody sounding a message of basic difference from them got an ear. That's why the two most remarkable political figures of that race were Donald Trump on the extreme right and Bernie Sanders, who represented the resurgence of a socialism here in the United States, coming at the same issues, but from the left. And I think what you're going to see is a continued economic, accompanied by a continued political polarization, as the right goes further in that direction, 
and the left does as well. There is much talk in Australia at the moment about a massive property bubble that's set to burst. The Chinese financial sector is laden with enormous debts that are likely never to be paid back. Europe remains in the depths of a huge debt crisis with sluggish growth. Meanwhile, Wall Street and American financial institutions go on repeating the orgy of speculation we saw 10 years ago, flooding the market with cheap credit, but not investing in real production and employment. Are we heading down the path to another major economic crisis? And given central banks throughout the world spent so much money trying to save the system 10 years ago, might capitalism next time have, as it were, no means of escape? Well, you know, I, I don't make predictions. I, I don't believe in them. They, they are an amusement, but not, not anything more than that. Uh, so I can't really comment on, on where it's going to go. I can tell you that instead of dealing with the absurd inequality that leads literally billions of people to have to go into debt, all that was done after 2008 was basically the socialization of debt. The governments of the world replaced corporations and individuals as the major debtor. We literally had the government borrowing money in order to pay off the debts that could not be paid by the banks, by large corporations, and so on. So we didn't do away with the debt. We just transferred it from the private books to the public. And by the way, not completely. There's still enormous overhangs of individual and corporate debt, uh, but it's all been made bearable for a while by having the interest rates go almost to zero. So the debt could go crazy without the cost of, of holding all that debt going up proportionally. That's why there's so much problem now that the excess money created in that process is leading central banks, particularly the Federal Reserve, to raise interest rates out of a terror of what can happen when all that extra money starts looking around. So are we headed down the same path? Absolutely. Uh, so clear is that, in fact, that over recent weeks here in the United States, I'll give you just one example, there are other examples, the largest single bank in the United States, the J.P. Morgan Bank, uh, released a report just this last week in which they confidently predict that either in late 2019 or early 2020, there will be a financial crash that stock market prices, on average in the United States at least, will drop by 20%. That's the number they provide, which is a massive uh, trillions of dollars loss of capital value. So not only is, is your question appropriate, but the people who invest the money of the, of the American millionaire class are themselves admitting that they couldn't solve the problem of these crashes and that the next one is on the way. And they're even so bold as to give you numbers as to when it will happen and what size it will be. I think that's crazy. I don't think they can know that. Uh, but they feel it coming uh, so that the answer to your question is even the people you might imagine would not want to face what a failure such a prediction implies about what you've done, but they feel they have to tell their clients how to get ready for what they think is a system whose instability is about to whack us all again.